This is episode five of Hidden in Plain Sight, the podcast exploring what happened to Christopher Marlowe after 1593 when he was allegedly murdered. I'm back here with our resident experts, Dr. Peter Hodges and Carol Paxton. Hello, guys. Hello. Here's something interesting. You may have heard of the new BBC series called Shakespeare, Rise of a Genius, which began last week. It is part acted and features luminaries such as Judi Dench, Helen Mirren, and James Shapiro, the, the author of Contested Will. Now, I watched the first episode where some of the talking heads claimed that Shakespeare's later plays, such as Lear and Othello, were fairly autobiographical and showed clues of his life. However, I want to bring up one of the show's key assertions, which is that Shakespeare left the glove-making business for the bright lights of London and got a job as a stagehand in the theatre. Apparently, this is how he learned everything he knew about playwriting, just by simply observing everything backstage. It goes further to say that he realised he could never be taken as seriously as the university wits, the playwrights of the day, led by Marlowe, Green and Nash, among others, so he hatches an audacious plan to get George Peel on his side. Together, they planned to outdo the university wits by writing an even gorier play, Titus Andronicus. And this apparently is what sets him off on the path to superstardom. And oh, for those of you who have followed our last two episodes, the series also assumes that Shakespeare is the upstart crow mentioned by Robert Greene. What do you think, guys? Could Shakespeare have been backstage inhaling the craft of playwriting by way of stage management? Well, if I can just jump in, I can agree that Shakespeare was backstage. <laughs> I think we can allow him that much. And he may very well have understood, by virtue of looking at it from backstage, how these things operated and what needed to be done when and in what order. But to presume that he then turned around and wrote Titus Andronicus, I think you want to ask Ben Johnson about that, because according to him, Titus Andronicus was written about the same time as Hieronimo, which would have been sometime around 1589, which then doesn't really dovetail with this theory of Shakespeare wandering around backstage at the Globe. In my view, what was happening with Shakespeare once he made it onto the scene and how he managed to become significant with the company? You have to think about this from the moment in time after Pembroke's Men is formed and the leading writer for Pembroke's Men suddenly disappears. Now, the leading writer for Pembroke's Men was Christopher Marlowe. And in May of 1593, he disappeared. Nobody could find him. In fact, we have Ned Allen writing to his father-in-law, Henslow, about what happened to them. And Henslow's writing back and saying, well, I, I really don't know. Their word is they're selling their costumes. So we know that Pembroke's men was in financial distress right about the time that Shakespeare contributed his name 
to Venus and Adonis, and then subsequently to Rape of Lucrece. And then subsequent to that, following the Night of Errors, where the Comedy of Errors debuted, Shakespeare is paid, along with Richard Burbage and Kemp, for the entertainment that took place that night, which was the performance of the Comedy of Errors. Now, this is in March of 1595. So in a span of two years' time, during which the theaters were closed because of plague, somehow Shakespeare became very important to the theater company, which had been Pembroke's men, which had been in such dire straits that they were selling their costumes. So you wonder how it is that he was able to hold together Richard Burbage, who had played in the contention and in the true tragedy of Richard III before the court in 1593, how it is that that company sustained itself and kept itself together during the time that all of these theaters were closed. And one of the ways it seems to me, and we have some proof of this, is that that company began publishing the scripts that Marlowe had left behind. Now, this includes plays like Titus Andronicus, which was co-owned by the Pembroke's men and Lord Strange's men. It was performed by both, but it was really belonged to Pembroke's men, and then it slipped through their fingers because Ned Allen starred in it, and he took it with him when he wanted to perform for Lord Strange's men. We also have the contention. We have the true tragedy. We have The Taming of a Shrew and The Tragedy of Richard III, which was a rewrite. No, excuse me. This was a follow-up to The True Tragedy. And all of these were subsequently published in the period between 1594 and 1597 with no attribution. There was no name of William Shakespeare put on these plays. And for a long time, these were the only versions of these plays that were known. <laughs> Fancy that. Now, if Shakespeare had joined this company as a backstage person who was trying to use his business acumen to organize and keep them together during a fallow period, the one asset that they had was those plays. And they could make some money and they could tide themselves over during that period by selling those plays to the publisher. They maintained the performance rights, but the publishers got the money from publishing the plays and they sold. Now, the other interesting thing about this is the fact that the market for plays as publications didn't really exist until this moment. There'd been a few plays published by John Lilly. And of course, Tamburlaine was published. And that sold so well that they then came out with King John. But in general, this was not something that was looked upon as a real moneymaker until they had this half dozen scripts to put out into the marketplace. And the appetite for them was so strong because the theaters were closed. And so a market in theatrical literature is being made on the detritus of what Marlowe had to leave behind with Pembroke's men. I admit I do find that extremely interesting. What you're trying to figure out is how Shakespeare got ensconced 
into the world of the theater, how he became the man. I think the point to make is that it was a gradual process. I think also the point to make, putting these two episodes together, is that he did not start off as an actor. He did not start off as a writer. He started off as a businessman. He came to London. If Carol's observation about that court case is actual, we can certainly assume that the case itself is true. If Shakespeare was then on hand for the argument over who owed the money, he's there as a business person. He's not there as a creative person. He comes to London with money on his mind to start with. If he goes to the theater, he sees a huge crowd of people paying a big pile of money to see a performance of something that fundamentally he can't understand as anything other than a full house. And a full house is a very good thing. And the more times you can fill a house and get paid for it, the better. And that is something that he could very quickly grasp and begin to find a way to penetrate it. If his friend Richard Field, if he's consulting with Richard Field about what do you know about the theaters and who's important and who's not and who do I need to talk to? And let's assume that Fields is open to having that conversation because Shakespeare is not then presenting himself as a potential competitor in the printing business. He's not asking for work in the printing business. What he's asking for is intelligence on business in London, and in particular, one that seems to pay better than being a printer. So they had these conversations. And if, if, if the cumulative effect of that is that Fields nominates him as a potential name, because it gives him traction to enter a space otherwise he couldn't get him into because he wasn't going to take him on as an apprentice. Shakespeare didn't have the money to pay him to do that. So there's got to be some other way. You're not going to give me any money. I'm not going to have you in my print shop and you're sure as hell not going to be, you know, thumbing through all of these books here that you, you could barely read anyway. So I don't need you to do that. But if you think you can make a living doing that, you know, you're welcome to try. And one thing leads to another. Shakespeare's very determined. He's clearly got an eye for some of this stuff. Heaven knows how many times he went back and forth to Stratford to make arrangements so that he could pursue this stuff. But if once he then got his toe in the door, he proceeded wherever opportunity lay. There is a way, isn't there, in which Marlowe and Shakespeare are distorted images of each other yeah they had a lot in common very similar social class they were born into both fathers in the leather trade one glover one cobbler obviously pretty much the same age and you can almost imagine that if they did meet them thinking my god if things had been a little bit different that would have been me well, Shakespeare would think that. I don't think Marlowe would think that. <laughs> I think Marlowe might have thought thought it in the sense of, my God, how awful things could have, have been. You know, how, how fortunate I was to get the education to go to Cambridge, etc. would You know, that's a very interesting thought. Yeah. 
Would yeah. Marlowe actually be capable of looking at somebody like Shakespeare, who is an exact contemporary of his, who, although from a smaller town, if his father had had his wits about him, might have tried to nominate him for an education that could have propelled him on such a path. It's something of all the roads not traveled. I tend to think they didn't meet until much later, but it's, yeah, but... But then the, the whole the whole comedy of errors of yeah and then we take it all the way through to not quite the end but we take it all the way through to Cymbeline yes uh, where you have those the two characters Posthumus and Cloten and you can actually double them the same actor can play both those parts Cloten dies with his head and face obscured dressed in Posthumus's clothes. As I say, you can definitely double the part. It's written so you can double the part. They are the good angel and the bad angel, the good twin and the bad twin, the the left hand and the right hand. The the you know the, the, there is this sort of feeling of the I say the distorted reflection of each other. Well, you would wonder how this relationship might have developed over time. Hmm, interesting ideas, nonetheless. Carol, I like to bring us back to the idea of publishing plays as something to read. I mean, this was quite a new thing in the 1590s. Maybe you can expand a bit more on that. Lucas Earn wrote a very good book some while ago called Shakespeare as a Literary Dramatist. Obviously, it assumes that the Shakespeare from Stratford's the author, but I think he makes some very good points about how plays became literature for reading and how the published versions of plays perhaps differed somewhat from the performed versions, had more poetry in them possibly, but it's an interesting transitional period between plays as a purely stage phenomena and plays as literature. It's a period when publishing itself is a fairly new thing. And making markets in different types of publication. I mean, we don't really have novels at all, except for Thomas Nash's Unfortunate Traveler, which is considered to be one of the precursors of the great English novel. We mostly have manuals and chapbooks and reprints of classical text, oftentimes not even translated. Uh, Collections of sermons? (laughs) And sermons, and sermons were big sellers. And then, of course, you also have, and I think spurring the market in this is the Marprelate thing, which, of course, was scandalous. And everybody wanted to know the secret behind who was printing this stuff. So this was what was generating a lot of the income for the publishers. And you have Robert Greene doing his reportage and all of his coney-catching books and so forth, all of his behind-the-scenes things. Yeah, and then we have the Harvey Nash. There, there, uh, Whether how much of that was real and how much of that was marketing is always something which I wonder about. I I don't think they liked each other, but I think it was jolly good business to hype that. Well, it was good business, and it was also, I think there was a certain level of personal enmity in there. Yes. You know, but they both knew they could sell this stuff. Exactly. And, and one of Harvey's friends was John Wolfe, you know, who was head of the stationers. And he published a Gorgon for Harvey, which eventually wound its way into being noticed in Comedy of Errors. 
But my point here is that Shakespeare, far from being an author, he was nevertheless a very savvy businessman. And he saw a property that he could move and he could use in order to hold together a company of people that he, down the road, understood would be very useful and necessary in the lucrative business of the theater. And so he set himself out using the property that no one else would claim because they couldn't perform it. He then turned around and did something basically very unique. He had them published and he established himself as a friend of the publishers and as a friend of poets and as a friend of actors because he was moving the money around and keeping a lot of people afloat in hard times. Really a good thing to have done. Smart cookie, that guy. That's quite an interesting theory you've mentioned, Peter, because, you know, in our last series, we talked about how Marlowe was really upset that George Chapman had assigned his name to Marlowe's works. And how would Marlowe have felt about this? Well, you know, one of the things that Marlowe appears to have been doing was producing new work. He wrote Richard II during this period of time, and it's often viewed as a criticism of the Earl of Essex. He wrote the Henry IV and V series, which debuted during this period. So he wasn't inactive. And I think he certainly understood that he no longer owned those scripts. They belonged to Pembroke's men. He didn't have the wherewithal to help them. He was himself dependent upon the good support of the Walsinghams and others. There was no copyright for him. He might not have liked it, but I don't think there was much he could do about it. And if he was looking forward to a future in the theater, it certainly served his purposes to encourage Pembroke's men, which subsequently became the Queen's men, to survive. When you look at where Shakespeare gets mentioned in Comedy of Errors, and he also shows up in Love's Labor's Lost. When you look at those, he's having some fun at Shakespeare's expense. He's not absolutely disowning him. And I wouldn't call them chums or anything, but there's a sense that one, he's aware of him. He considers himself superior to him. He always paints him as something of a knucklehead. But that being said, he doesn't go out and attack him the way that he did Harvey when he warned him about the hangman's noose. And I think as well, there is a point of view that says that Burley, Cecil, whatever you want to call him, felt that the stage, particularly history plays, had a role to play in effectively promoting patriotism, educating the public, etc., and Burley was, as you mentioned, I think, in an earlier episode, Burley was from the mercantile classes. Burley knew about business, about making money. And I think he might have seen in Shakespeare a man who could manage a company from the business point of view. He wasn't worried about the fact that he wasn't an actor, he wasn't a writer. He wanted somebody who he could trust to keep the company solvent. Well, you don't need a writer. You've got Marlowe. You don't need yeah, a writer. Exactly. Burley could look at Shakespeare and go, what do you mean you're writing place? Don't waste your time with that. Yeah, but he would have, I think, perhaps seen that he, Shakespeare, was somebody who would be ideal to manage the company as a business. Right. 
I think that's the logical way to look at this. And I think there's an awful lot that this television show and, and all the hagiography that's been built up around Shakespeare, as if it was so easy to stand backstage, watch a play in reverse, and then come up with a better one. I know that happens every day, and it's certainly a good argument for subsidizing the theaters. But, <laughs> but honestly, <laughs> folks... <laughs> An education is a prerequisite, okay? Yeah. And Turgis Andronicus, going back to it, might be, well, might be, it is an absolute gore fest, but it is a gore fest with very solid classical foundations. Everything that happens in it can be traced back to some particular classical source. And there's a... Particularly a, Ovid. Particularly yeah, Ovid. Ovid, yeah. And there's a, a good story that when uh, Robert Graves wrote I, Claudius, he looked at all the sources and picked the most scandalous to write his famous novel. Well, in a way, Tess Andronicus is a bit like that. You flick through mentally all the classics you uh, know, remember from school, from university, from private reading, and you picked out all the goriest bits. Yeah, you know, in my book, I trace some of the connection between that gore and some of what ends up in Unfortunate Traveler, which is echoing it, because of course Titus was already on stage by the time Marlowe disappeared. And the allusions to Ovid and the utilization of the metamorphosis as a foundation for what happens in Titus. I mean, heaven's sakes, they eat everybody. <laughs> yeah, the that's, 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 that's up there with the gore fest, but it's, it's actually a very classically oriented piece and not something, yes, yeah, sure, a fellow from the Hustings might be attracted to the gore, but the scaffolding of it, he wouldn't know, he wouldn't yeah. understand, and he mm. wouldn't be able to reference or command. Yeah. And it's also very apparent if you read them back to back that Barabbas from the Jew of Malta and Aaron from Titus yes. are really very close. And in fact, in his brilliant book, the title of which I forget, Bernard Spivey's book on how the medieval vice figure becomes the theatrical villain, um, he uses these two as examples Barabbas and Aaron, that is, of a figure that has a lot to do with the uh, older vice character in the sense that his malignity is fairly motiveless, but is also beginning to become a personality as well, who interacts with the audience in a particular way, who does what he does, not for some great discernible psychological reason, but because he is, and we still have this in the James Bond style of movie, because he's a villain. Why is he villainous? He's a villain. And he's also Ned Allen, don't forget. And oh, well, yes, of course. I mean, what actor doesn't love playing the bad guy? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. who could do it better? And yeah. the scene chewer himself, the yeah. shake scene himself, Ned exactly. Allen. Exactly, exactly. You know, fierce yeah. and ferocious, put a little black paint on and go for it. Max von Sydow? I can't say the name properly. You know, great <laughs> classical actor and truly fabulous as Ming the Merciless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's a part you can really camp it up like mad, I suppose, in modern terms. But in terms of Ned Allen, yeah, sure. It allows you to thunder all over the stage. Yeah. And that's all we seem to have time for this particular episode. 
I think we are done now with Shakespeare and Shakespeare for a while. Just so all of you know, we don't just talk about these things off the top of our heads. We do try and base everything we say on strong sources, well, as strong as we can find them. And we have published these as a list, which you can find on our website. In our next episode, we are going to focus on drum roll, the sonnets. And let's see if we can find out what else is hidden in plain sight. <laughs>